This is Car Expert. To have a car like this could do really big things for Renault and could kind of put it back on the map. Ford has really focused on making this next Everest more upmarket and more luxurious. Already it's one of the more expensive cars in this segment. The 508, I actually fell in love with it and didn't want to give it back. Hello, my name's Mandy Turner. We're joined by Mike Costello. Hello, Moco. Hello, Mandy Turner. How are you? <laughs> Very well, thank you. And hello, Scott Colley. Hello, guys. There's some exciting news this week for our uh, Melbourne team. Our office is moving. So, yeah, this is, I would argue, the biggest news story in the world this week. Um, <laughs> forget about invasions, forget about pandemics, car experts moving. Um, but, yeah, Jason was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about the new Experience Centre. And the new office is a part of that as well. So we'll be based in Docklands in Melbourne and we've got access to, and I can't believe I'm saying this, 12 car spots for the editorial oh, team compared to the four God. we have at the moment. So wow. the really exciting thing, along with the new office space and being in what looks like quite a cool precinct in Docklands, is being able to come to work every day and know that Mike Costello hasn't parked his BT50 in the space that I was going to use. So guess what? Guess what, Scully? Guess who's going to be doing 10-car mega tests every single month now that we can park them all? <laughs> we, we do have one of those in the works, don't we? Ooh, mega test. What sort of mega test is it or is it a bit too early to say? I don't want to give too much away purely because I know we're still waiting on final details for some of the cars, but uh-huh. mid-size SUVs um, oh, nice. and what we're doing with them is a little bit different to some of our previous mega tests, so I won't ruin too much of the surprise at this point. <laughs> Very nice. Um, now, Moko, you've done a review of the redesigned Mercedes-Benz C-Class. Uh, can you fill us in on this, please? Absolutely. So the last one called W205, to use nerdy terminology, was the top-selling luxury car in Australia over its life cycle. So in recent times, the BMW 3 Series has had its measure, but for the longest time, the C-Class was the most popular luxury car you can buy. Now, this new one, uh, W206, has been delayed and delayed because of the ongoing chip shortages. Mercedes just couldn't get enough on the ground to support the launch, but it's finally done so. Kicking off with the C200 and the C300, so the mainstream range. And the big news on the face of it is, okay, it's a whole new car. It looks evolutionary on the outside, but on the inside, it's completely revolutionary. Two of the most high-res screens you'll see in a car today, the brilliant MBUX infotainment system, augmented reality nav, absolute Hollywood interior, which is something Mercedes does better than just about any brand at the moment. But the other side of it is the prices, which have gone up quite a long way. The old one kicked off at 60900 before on road costs when it launched in 2014, and this new one is 78900 So I understand that inflation and supply chain and shipping and logistics and all these things have played havoc with prices lately, but that's a hell of a jump. Yeah. Um, and then there's a C300 at 90400 Both of them use small petrol engines with... Uh, ISG, so an integrated starter generator and a 48-volt electrical system that gives a bit of boost, slow down, helps the car glide, makes the stop-start smoother. And the thing I noticed about this car without going into too much detail is it's very much a baby S-Class now, not just in the way it looks, not just in terms of its screens, but also in terms of how refined and quiet and comfortable it is. It's not trying to be a sports car anymore. It just wants to be a cushy Benz. So I was pretty impressed overall. Mr. Scully, you've got something to say. I've just got a question, actually. I was yeah. wondering if all of it or the good stuff is standard because often with Mercedes-Benz launches and releases, they talk about the incredible screens and the fact the car will do a double backflip and park itself and all that cool <laughs> stuff. But often in Australia, we don't get the good stuff or you have to pay for it as part of options packs. Bit of a mixed bag there, mate. So a lot of it is standard. Um, so the big screens are standard. Um, however, it's disappointing that only the C300 gets the expanded level two driver assist tech. So the C200 gets all your basics like your lane keeping aid and your autonomous braking and blind spot monitoring, etc. But to have it all be super active and the latest iterations thereof, um, you've got to step up to the C300. I'm a bit disappointed when I saw that. I mean, we kicked Polestar for making some of its more advanced driver assist features an option. It's only right that we kick Mercedes for doing the same thing. 
There's also a vision package, which is a pano sunroof, a head-up display, augmented reality nav, etc., etc. There's a, a digital light package with the S-Class's incredible digital lights with 1.3 million micro mirrors per headlight, which is just mind-boggling. Um, there's an urban guard package, an engineering package, rear-wheel steering and adaptive dampers, which, again, would have thought that might have been standard on C300. Funnily enough, that is not available for the time being because of these bloody chip shortages. They just cannot get them because guess what adaptive dampers and rear wheel steering they use semiconductors too um so to answer your question there are a few things that are optional they have been gathered up into packages and if you head over to carexpert.com.au and check out the review we've got our section in there detailing all the standard features and it's not like it was 20 years ago where you'd get winding windows and cloth seats and no screen (laughs) like you might with the base versions uh, of the c-class still in germany it is a very well specified car but it would want to be considering the price likes too. Mm. Are we still getting the wagon? Absolutely not. And that is hugely disappointing. That was one thing we asked. uh, And and Mercedes-Benz said, look, we just don't sell enough to justify it. And I just say, I I can't get my head around that. Um, They've gone to this agency model that allows them to kind of have all of their stock in-house and centralised, which should theoretically remove a lot of the complexities around different dealers stocking different amounts of cars. I can't really work out why you wouldn't bring the wagon, even if it was only 10% of sales, but there you go, no wagon. And then Mercedes says, hey, you can go buy a GLC if you want, but the GLC doesn't have the new C-Class's interior, new platform, new engines, etc., etc. So I think that might be a mistake from Benz, and I've, I've called it out as such. All right. Well, we're going to get stuck into some more news um, right now. But, yeah, as uh, Mike said, head to the site if you want to know more about that car. And we'll throw to you first, Scully. Jeep Australia is increasing prices by rather a lot. It sure is. Jeep is far from the only brand to increase the prices at the moment. We know that supply is tight and between COVID and war breaking out in Europe and all the other stuff that's going on, there's a lot that car makers can't control. But most of the price rises we've covered recently have been between $500 and $2,000 or something like that. Even on some of the really luxurious stuff, they've been incremental increases that maybe manufacturers usually would have absorbed, but with everything that's going on, they've decided they don't want to or they can't. Jeep hasn't quite done that. The Wrangler range is up by between $6,600 and $7,000 compared to last year, which is a lot of money, whichever way you spin it, especially when you consider the starting price of that car. It's about a 10% increase in some cases. And even the Gladiator Ute is up by $2,300 in some cases. The Cherokee, which is Jeep's not quite mid-size, not quite large, not quite very popular SUV that sits between the Compass and the Grand Cherokee, is up by $3,500. And even the Compass got a $1,000 increase. But prices on that car were increased last year in line with a, uh, with a reshuffle in the range and a facelift. So some of that's already been absorbed. Jeep hasn't, it appears, gone down the route some other brands have gone and taken features out of their cars because of the chip shortage. And it's also saying that these were unavoidable price rises. It essentially said that the cost of doing business at the moment is that everything's expensive and that customers are going to have to pay it across the board. And that's probably a fair statement based on what we've seen from everywhere else. It's also worth noting that when the Grand Cherokee L, which is the seven-seat Grand Cherokee replacement coming to Australia in the middle of this year, was launched, we all looked at the price and went, wow, that's really steep. But as it turns out, that's not the only car in the Jeep range. It's moving up market in price and hopefully uh, hopefully buyers respond and uh, are still interested in the car because it looks fantastic, that Grand Cherokee L. Mm. I've got to say, though, I... I'm not so sure about this approach. And and look, clearly, I I don't have access to all of Jeep Australia's financials. Um, But Jeep can't be trying to price its cars at premium European levels because it's just not seen that way here. Jeep, like other brands in the past that have fallen into this trap, may have a PR line and it might try to spin it and say, hey, we're a primo brand, we're an aspirational brand, why can't we price our cars in line with the luxury brands? But The fact of the matter is, I don't think most people really see Jeep that way. And if a base Cherokee costs 10 or 15 grand more than a base RAV4, you can't tell me that it's worth that. A Wrangler and a Gladiator, slightly different cases because, you know, a Wrangler, what the hell else are you going to buy? I mean, it's 70 grand, but everything else that's an off-roader is the same price. So I can kind of swing that. But things like Compass and Cherokee, I mean, a top-of-the-range Compass, small SUV, 52,650, it's a fair bit of coin. And if look, if Jeep can sell cars at this price, good luck to it. But i got to say, they're pretty hard to swallow. 
at risk of going too far on this, I know we've got other stuff to get to, but the compass in particular is interesting because the compass we get in Australia is built in India because it's meant to be cheaper to build right-hand drive over there and easier for us to source. So it is interesting that in tr- even though it's tried to insulate us from some of the stuff that's hitting the rest of the world and tried to make that car easier to source for Australia, even it's caught up in the, the chip crunch and, and what's going on elsewhere. All right, well, we're going to talk about some Peugeot cars a little bit later on, but this is interesting news, Moco. The Renault Megane E-Tech Electric is coming here. Yeah, it is. So the, the Renault has sort of rebirthed the Megane um, uh, as the E-Tech Electric. It's a really interesting sort of sporty-looking crossover because, let's be honest, if a Megane hatch came out today, nobody would buy it. Crossover is where it's at. It shares a lot uh, with the Nissan Aria, so the CMF EV platform that the, the Nissan Renault Alliance uses. So it's got the latest generation technologies underneath it. Um, this basically came about because we were filling out our new car calendar and we were just updating what was coming and when. And we reached out to the uh, the public relations person for Renault Australia's distributor, Atiko Automotive, and, and they said, yeah, Megane E-Tech Electric will come in a, to Australia in 2023 but then said, we've got nothing else that we can really say at this stage. So I can't give you an exact ETA and I can't give you a whole lot of technical breakdowns. But it's very interesting that Nissan hasn't yet 100% locked in Aria for this market. Um, but Renault appears, maybe because it's a lower volume player, to have locked in the E-Tech Electric. Renault, of course, has sold EVs here before. It's currently selling the Kangoo ZE electric van. It has sold the Zoe before ADR. Uh, laws changed and forced it to axe it, but this car is a much more sophisticated bit of kit. It rivals the Tesla Model 3 and the Volkswagen ID4, neither of which have gone on sale in Australia yet, but both <laughs> of which will go on sale in Australia at some point because we are a bit of a dumping ground for old technologies these days. Um, and it looks really good. And we've got a review coming on this car quite soon from one of our contributors, Damien, overseas. And, and from what I've heard from everybody that I really rate, this car is actually getting, you know, really good feedback. It's meant to be quite light, quite agile, decent range, really nice design. I think it looks fantastic. I think it's one of the best-looking mm. Renaults I've seen in a while. Um, and it's this kind of car that could, I guess with Renault, it sort of lost its way a bit in Australia, wouldn't you say? It's It sort of sells a lot of vans, a lot of Colios SUVs, but it's not exactly a desirable aspirational brand at the moment. It's more of a price point brand. So to have a car like this could do really big things for Renault and could kind of put it back on the map. Um, and, you know, we know electric car demand is spiking in Australia. Um, you know, it's growing by hundreds of percent based on last year's figures versus this year's figures. So it should do pretty well and very excited to see it. The interior of this car in particular, if every next-gen Renault looks even a little bit like this, I'm very excited. It sort of takes the the vertical screen and interesting lines of the current cars which are really cool and interesting but not quite fully realized i would argue Mm. they're still rooted in current technology and current design and just takes it to a place you can take it with a proper electric platform so i mean and uh let's not forget that renault has also confirmed that it is doing a reborn uh renault 5 uh, fully electrified uh, with <laughs> retro design that harks awesome. back to the original. And I still think to this very day that the Renault 5 is the greatest car design of all time, um, the single best-looking car that has ever been made, in my opinion, which is probably something that no one else shares. But um, <laughs> that excites me no end, and, as, and so does this. And i got to say, as a car enthusiast, Renault's starting to excite me a bit again, which I haven't said in a while. So awesome Great stuff. Work. Can I ask what the E means in E-Tech? Please don't I say see. it means electric. Yeah, so Megane, electric, tech, electric. <laughs> yes. I think it's we so talked confusing. about this last time on the podcast as well and came to the the conclusion that, yeah, it was called the electric tech electric, <laughs> which is sort of like calling yourself Mandy Mandy Turner Turner or yes, exactly. Mandy Turner or something like that. That's like when my, one of my pet hates is when somebody says VIN number. Mm. Yes. What does the N in VIN stand for? <laughs> Yeah, this is sort of like that, right? Same thing with pin number or 5pm at night. (laughs) (laughs) Um, More electric news. Scully Kia is launching two electric utes, which is among 14 new EVs. The Kia ute has been one of those stories that every single Australian outlet has been chasing for years and we never knew what it would look like. Kia's been quite evasive on it and said, oh, It'll definitely need to be a work vehicle. People from South Korea have been in Australia investigating what it'll look like. It'd need to work as a commercial vehicle, but also need to be a modern Kia with the luxuries. And they've never actually said when it's coming. And they've never actually said 
what will power it and what form it'll take. And we'd always assumed it was going to be a diesel-powered Toyota Hilux rival or maybe something a little more plush, but, you know, a, a ute version of, call it the Telluride or something like that from overseas. That still may happen, but we now know that there is definitely an electric Kia coming by 2027, and it's going to be a Ford Ranger-sized ute with proper electric power. Think of it as like a Kia Rivian R1T or Kia Ford F-150 Lightning rival, one of those really cool utes that we're seeing overseas. Um, under the skin is the eGMP platform that Kia has already released and shown off for some of its other cars. Um, and that opens the door for all sorts of modern stuff that we really expect from the latest electric cars. So that means 800-volt rapid charging. It'll do up to uh, 350 kilowatts, my understanding. Um, it's got a really flat floor and lots of space on the inside in SUV form, and that'll play in really nicely with making lots of space for a ute. Um, and by that point, it's also expected to include a full level three autonomous driving feature and the latest, like, infotainment and communications architecture from Hyundai and Kia, which promises to be a big step forward again. We're expecting two different utes, one of them aimed at markets like Australia and another aimed at developing markets. So think maybe more Latin America and that sort of place where Fiat utes and smaller cars, same sort of size as the Hyundai Santa Cruz are quite popular. Um, whichever one we get, hopefully we get both. It's quite exciting. Um. Why do you think it's taken so long for Hyundai and Kia to get a ute happening? Uh, that's a really good question. Mike, you've probably got more mm. insight into this than I do, but I think well, the way I look at it, Kia and Hyundai have spent a long time building their brand to the point where they can be seen as, you know, pulling off a $90,000 electric car and a big car that's luxurious and quite bold like the Sorento and the Santa Fe. And that's probably been a higher priority for them than, than a Ute. But now they're at a point where the brand is strong and maybe people who own a Santa Fe also need a work Ute and they want to, sorry, a Santa Fe, a Sorento need a work Ute and they also want a Kia to do that. So I think just the priorities of the brands have been, you know, building in different areas. And now they're at a point where, you know, they've got the technology, they've got the, the fan base and the, the demand for them and, and they think they can tap into this market. Yeah, look, aside from Sangyong, Korea is not really a Ute market. It's not really ever on the top of their minds. Um, Australia might be crying out for it, but Australian motoring enthusiasts sometimes forget the fact that Australia really ain't that important in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> um, what we have seen lately that's changed the game, though, is uh, any company that even talks about doing an electric pickup truck, whether it's the F-150 Lightning, the Rivian, the Cybertruck, the Chevy Silverado, the new Ram that's going electric, arrival a company out of the uk all sorts of companies promising electric utes or pickup trucks they've seen their shares spike they've seen orders come in by the hundreds of thousands they've seen the fact that there's been this sea change in buyer demand where people are now really open to the idea of electric commercial cars so what i suspect has happened here is kia and hyundai have gone eh, diesel ute you know it's a bit old school i don't know if there's much in it for us but suddenly oh, we can make it electric, we can tap into what we're doing as a wider company, and we can also, you know, surf this wave that's currently going on with, you know, electric pickup trucks in general. And based on what we've been seeing from Kia with its latest EVs uh, and Hyundai, which we'll touch on in a second, there's every chance it'll be an absolute game changer because the Korean, the Korean giants are honestly at this point leaving most of the Japanese for dead. Um, they're just doing extraordinary things with, with their latest iteration cars, and I, I imagine the next gen will be no different. Yeah. Well, as Marco said, Hyundai uh, has got some brilliant news along with Genesis. 17 mm. new cars uh, are also coming here. Sorry, yeah. how many? Yeah, well, 17 in general. 17. Um, I, I doubt <laughs> all of them will come to Oz. But, um, so the Hyundai brand 11 and then Genesis 6. Hyundai's will include three sedans, six SUVs and one light commercial vehicle and then one new type model in uh, quote marks. So whether that means a coupe or who knows, <laughs> it could be anything. Um, but they want 7% of the global EV market by 2030, Hyundai Motor, wow. um, including Genesis, which is a significant chunk. Um, and and mm. given the amount of money it's been spending, $22 billion Aussie uh, dollar investment through 2020 just in the products. And by that point, it's trying to sell almost 2 million EVs a year. Uh, and that's just Hyundai. This is not including Kia that we just spoke about, even though globally they're kind of the same companies. We've already seen concept versions of Ionic 6 and 7. Ionic 5, obviously, is already on sale to rapturous applause, just like Kia's EV6. Genesis launches a couple of EVs in Australia this year, the EV, the GV70 and the GV60. Um, 
So this kind of, I guess, goes in similar lines to what we talked about with Kia before, which is just that Hyundai, like Kia, is spending tens of billions of dollars over the next few years to completely overhaul its range, the majority of which will be EV, most of which, based on previous form lines, will come to Australia because Hyundai and Kia are very good at bringing cars here, albeit in slightly smaller numbers than they'd like. And, um, you know, aside from Volkswagen and Tesla, there really aren't too many brands at the moment putting out product plans focused on electrification with quite the same level of detail. And I think the subtext to a lot of this is Hyundai and Kia want shareholder value to increase. They want their market capitalization to increase because they're probably sick of seeing startups like Lucid and Rivian having these insane market caps that are as high as BMW and Mercedes and Ford. And they probably thought, this is crazy. Let's tell the public what we're working on. Let's build some hype. Um, I don't think anything that was announced wasn't already on the cards, but now it's talking about it, which is, you know, obviously the sort of transparency we want to see. And I tell you what, if you're a follower of either of the Korean giants, the next few years are going to be very exciting. I do wonder as well if Kia and Hyundai have not seen this as an opportunity to finally take another step. Uh, I think one of the challenges being a brand like those guys, and they're absolutely established players and very well respected in the industry, and they make fantastic cars. But Every time you drive a Genesis with a six-cylinder engine, you're comparing it to a BMW inline six. And they've got a lot of ground to make up on brands with a really long heritage. None of that's a thing with electric cars. I know Tesla's around, but all of a sudden it's an opportunity for Hyundai and Genesis to establish themselves as a leader and to really pick up the torch with a new technology where there's not 120 years of baggage hanging over their heads and they can start to do some really interesting things. So good on them for picking up the torch for one, but it's going to be really interesting to see what they can do when they're not shackled by having to deal with and compete with a lot of brands with longer heritage in certain areas. And the final thing I'll touch on is um, in terms of software, Hyundai plans over-the-air updates to be available to all new models launched from the end of 2022 onwards. And um, I don't imagine there'll be too many mainstream volume companies that can match that play. So it's not just the electrification of powertrains, but it's also this, you know, Internet of Things, cloud-based car stuff. And, and, and the message got a bit complicated, frankly, because Hyundai and Kia were trying to talk about 100 different things at once. But when you put it all together, autonomy, cloud-based tech, OTA updates, EVs, it just says that the two Korean giants uh, are really where it's at as far as global car innovation is concerned at the moment. Now, Scully, the 2022 Ford Everest range has been detailed. This is pretty big news. This is huge news. With a new Ranger, we knew would come a new Everest because it's a big seller for Ford. But the waiting game was quite an interesting one because we knew that the Everest would be pretty much ready, but Ford was kind of keeping its cards close to its chest. Whatever was going on, the car is now ready to go. And if you want to head to YouTube and check out Paul's walkaround, which has done multiple hundreds of thousands of views already, uh, he gives you a really good look at the car. I think it looks fantastic. It looks like a Ranger up front and then down back it doesn't have that sort of slightly awkward ute-based look a lot of these cars do. It actually just looks like a like an Explorer almost or like one of those more sort of ground-up Ford SUVs. Under the skin, it's all pretty familiar. Ford has given it a version of the ladder frame chassis that's in the Ranger and there's a choice of 2-litre bi-turbo or 3-litre turbocharged diesel engines 10-speed automatics in both of them, and the 3.2-litre that's in the base version of the last Everest that's still on sale has now been killed, basically. So that engine has done its time for Ford, but it is officially off to the scrap heap in the sky. Um, Ford has really focused on making this next Everest more upmarket and more luxurious. Already it's one of the more expensive cars in this segment, and it seems like this time around it's just decided that rather than trying to, to dip its toe into being luxurious and dip its toe into the world of the Toyota Prado, it's going to set all, all troops on that car and, and try to take it down. That means inside, especially in the Platinum, which is a trim level that they've pulled from the F-150 in the US, you get beautiful leather trim, a massive vertically oriented central screen, digital driver's cluster, full suite of active driver assists, and all sorts of stuff in the back that'll keep the kids really happy on long trips. There's also lots of things in this that Ford says are based on feedback from owners in the previous Everest. And this is something they really focused on in the Ranger as well. There's underfloor storage. And I just like this because of the name Ford's given it. We would call it a storage leap, but Ford calls it an apple catcher. 
Seriously. (laughs) We had an argument about this in the office this week because it is just a lip on the back of the boot to stop things sliding out if you open the boot on a hill. But Ford has given it the name Apple Catcher. Um, It also says that a focus has been really put on listening to female customers in the development of this car. And that's something that car manufacturers are being more active in doing and more overt about because as much as blokes are the ones who like to talk about cars often, I know that's not always the case because, Mandy, you could talk most blokes onto the table when it comes to cars. Um, a lot of a lot of women in the car buying process are quieter but ultimately make the decisions and need to live with the cars in a way, in the same way as the blokes do. So Ford has really put a focus on that with this car and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out when it's actually on the road and in customer hands. This car... Provided Ford can get stock, and given it was developed in Australia, you'd bloody well hope so, will be an absolute smash hit. Prado, 2.8-litre four-cylinder diesel. MUX, 3-litre four-cylinder diesel. Pajero Sport, 2.4-litre four-cylinder diesel. Jeep Grand Cherokee, no longer even has a diesel, plug-in hybrid only. Land Cruiser 300, costs 150 grand. Patrol, petrol only. There's a massive army of people who want that perfect family 4x4, it can take them towing, can take them off-roading, can facilitate those adventures. This has full-time 4x4, a V6 diesel, all of the very latest tech. It looks a lot tougher than before. It quite literally ticks every single box in a way that absolutely no other ladder frame towing type 4x4, on paper at least, does. And uh, given the growing popularity of the old one, when it didn't have some of those attributes, I mean, Toyota's got its work cut out for it. I'm not saying that Everest is going to overtake Prado overnight. Prado is a staple and it is a go-to for good reason and it deserves to be. But this Everest looks like an absolute Prado killer to me on paper, and at least until the next Gen 1 arrives. And I think a growing number of people are going to wake up to that. If you are going to pick a time to try to kill the Prado, to use some you know very visual language for what is just selling cars, now would be the time too. There's a new Land Cruiser 300 series, but the Prado looks like it's not going to get all that tech and those looks until next year. It's going to lose its five-star ANCAP rating, which we know doesn't make it a less safe car, but will have an an impact on how it's marketed. The car is vulnerable and starting to look a bit old, and the Everest looks well-placed to swoop in at the right time and really take advantage. And we're going to end this week's news with... February V fact. I was just about to go and say March. Um, <laughs> Don't get ahead of yourself. No. <laughs> and it appears we've had a bit of growth, Moko. Yeah, 1.6%, which is nothing to write home about, um, although the market did not grow in January. Um, the line coming out of the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, the peak body for the car brands, is that guys, we're, we're, we're absolutely drowning in demand. We just cannot get the stock. It's a common sort of line we're getting from most car manufacturers at the moment. The fact that car sales still grew and the fact that there were still 85,340 new vehicles delivered in February suggests that, yeah, there are stock shortages, but there are still cars out there if, you can, if, you, if you're really looking, although a lot of these were probably satisfying existing orders as well. Um, the Toyota Hilux was obviously number one because it's always number one, <laughs> probably will be number one for a long time to come, and Toyota was the number one brand with 24% market share, which when you consider how cluttered Australia is, the fact that one brand owns a quarter of it is frankly nuts to me. Mm. Um, then there's a few surprises though. So the Toyota RAV4, which is one of the most in-demand vehicles in the market, uh, waiting lists of up to 12 months on the hybrid, was number two in market, sold more than 4,000 cars, far and away the top SUV. And then in number three was a vehicle that's been down in the doldrums lately because, again, lack of supply is the Mitsubishi Triton. Ah. So the third most popular car on sale was the Mitsubishi Triton, which uh, richly deserved. If we break down um, the, the brand list, Toyota, number one, Mazda, number two, Mitsubishi, flying, up 26%, number three for the month. Kia in fourth place, once again edged out Hyundai. And that is actually not that uncommon. We're seeing that more and more now. Hyundai still beat Kia for all of last year, but it's not exactly a rare thing now to see Kia outselling Hyundai in a month, just like it did in February. That's the top five. Ford in sixth, MG in seventh. So the Chinese brand MG has climbed to seventh. It only sells three cars. Two of them lead their segments. The MG3, number one light hatch on sale. MG ZS, number one small SUV on sale. Um, 
pretty incredible that a startup brand like that has, has clawed its way into seventh spot. Uh, Subaru in eighth, Nissan in ninth, down 26% because it's got no stock. Um, and then Isuzu drowning, uh, rounding out the top 10, just ahead of BMW. Volkswagen down 40%, Mercedes down 50%, and Honda down 30% were next. All three really struggling, um, mostly around supply, although with Honda and Mercedes-Benz, they've got this new agency model in place. So it's something that we're really going to have to watch just to see how, how buyers respond to that. Um, then if we break it down by models, Hilux number one, as I said before, RAV4 and Triton top three. Ford Ranger in fourth, uh, still nearly 3,500 sales, even though the brand new one just got revealed. There's still plenty of people <laughs> buying old ones. Toyota Prado in fifth, up 100%, 2,778 remarkable mgz s sixth isuzu d max seventh mazda cx30 made the top 10 finishing eighth oh, wow. overall uh not something you would have thought you'd be saying a year ago hyundai i30 the only passenger car inside the top 10 and that only just scraped in and then the mitsubishi outlander new gen uh in 10th position just ahead of the toyota corolla so a few new faces there um to be totally honest with you, it wasn't a month full of surprises. It was kind of more of the same, but nevertheless, plenty of detail there on the story on the site. Scott? My big month for the Triton, as you mentioned, do you think that there is something there that's you know been caused by more expensive utes and the Ranger running out and something sustainable for Mitsubishi, or do you think it's just down to a big boat worth of Tritons arriving in Australia and maybe they'll be through the floor next month? The latter. Definitely right. the latter. <laughs> Demand for Triton is still high because a lot of people don't really trust LDVs and Great Walls and they can't afford Rangers and Hiluxes and, you know, D-Maxes. And there's that Triton that sort of sits in the middle. It's a trusted known product. It's cheaper than most of the mainstream ones. Orders have been very strong for some time now, according to Mitsubishi. It's just that they haven't been able to satisfy them. So um, hopefully... For Mitsubishi's sake, at least, and for Ute buyers, let's be honest, um, supply remains high because it does show that demand for that truck, even though it's as old as the hills, is still very much there. Moko, the other number that stood out to me was Nissan Patrol. This car's seen a bit of a resurgence in the past couple of years on the back of COVID, even though it's now 10 years old. Um, it outsold the Land Cruiser. What's going on there? Yeah, and fuel prices are insanely high, and people are buying mm-hmm. record numbers of 2.5-tonne, 5.6-litre V8 SUVs. Gee, I don't know what people are getting paid. Um, in all seriousness, no, that, that, that patrol <laughs> is a good thing. Um, yeah, its interior is dated as hell, and it's a bloody shame that Nissan hasn't updated it, unlike left-hand drive versions. But other than that, it's a lot of car for the money. And, you know, with the shortages of Land Cruiser 300s, the fact that there was a boatload of patrols coming in, the fact that, you know, full-size American pickups are now doing really well as well, I think a lot more people are looking at that patrol and seeing it as a bit of a kind of misunderstood entrant. And, um... Yeah, what did they sell? It was nearly 700, which is pretty damn good numbers up there with what they were doing back when the Y61 was doing well in the early 2000s. So pretty good job there from Nissan. How'd the numbers for EV and hybrids go? Yeah, so EVs are tracking pretty well. Obviously, Tesla being Tesla don't share their figures with the Federal Chamber. Um, and when they did share their figures with EV, with the EV peak body, they, they gave them the wrong ones. So I don't, really, <laughs> I don't really trust Tesla all that much when it comes to sales. But if you take Tesla out... Um, there were 600 EVs sold last month, up 129%. And keep in mind that every month last year was growing more than 100% too. So if you, if you, if you can imagine a, a line graph, you know, showing EV sales over the past few years, it's going up at about 80, it's going up at about 80 degrees, right? It's a really steep growth that we're seeing, exponential growth. Um, and that hasn't changed. On the hybrid front, RAV4 is vast majority hybrid now, um, and Lexus obviously is, is majority hybrid too. More than 8,000 hybrids sold. That's up 62%. Um, so hybrids doing incredibly well. Plug-in hybrids still, they kind of fall in between the two when it comes to buy a take-up. Only 300 FEV sold, up 65%, but FEV sales, half EV sales. In fact, less than if you include Tesla in the EV sales as well. So hybrids and EVs very strong. Plug-in hybrids, mm, yeah, bit of work to do to get, to get the word out uh, as far as buyers are concerned there. The full report is at carexpert.com.au. You can go there and check out the full read. 
And also, I will add, um, do leave a comment. We're pretty active as far as uh, the, mm. the, the comments are concerned in that story. A lot. Of, I don't have time, obviously. There's 650 models on sale, so I can't give every single car. Otherwise, the story would be 9 million words long. But if you want to know anything at all about Australia's car market, please go in there and ask the question. Either myself or Scott or James or somebody will get back to you. We pride ourselves on getting back to people, so, so do hit us up. For this week's car review, we've joined by JWO. Hello, James Wong. Hi, team. How are we going? Very good, thank you. We've actually got uh, also Scully joining in on this as well. It's a bit of a Peugeot special for um, this week's review. So you've driven the 508 plug-in hybrid. Um, Scully, you've driven the uh, 3008. But we'll start with you, J-Wo. Um, and the most simple question there is, what is the 508? Well, by VFAX classification, it's a medium mainstream passenger car. So it's sort of a sedan, sort of a hatchback, sort of a four-door coupe. It's sort of mainstream. It's also sort of premium. <laughs> so, <laughs> the nicest, prettiest Peugeot you can buy, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a stunning thing. And, you know, it's been out now for a few years. I still remember covering the reveal um, as a as a youngster not uh, quite a while ago now, and it still looks incredible. Um, so what they've in, – in Europe, they've had pl- the plug-in hybrid for maybe a year or two now um, as a a lot of brands over there start moving to all forms of electrification to bring down their average fleet emissions. Um, but I guess demand or was high enough or Peugeot saw a market gap to fill with a plug-in hybrid version of the 508. So originally we thought we were going to get both the fastback and wagon body styles for the plug-in hybrid like we get with the, I say standard loosely because the GT, the 508 GT that we get is basically the absolute top specification that you can get. They don't offer any lower grades in Australia. Um, So we originally thought that we were going to get both body styles. They ended up only bringing the fastback. And so it's a, a around $17,000 more than the petrol one, even though they both make the same outputs, they're essentially the same in terms of specification, except for the plug-in hybrid riding on smaller wheels. Um, but yeah, otherwise, they're pretty much identical. So that, this is something that we've seen a lot of late with um, plug-in hybrid launches in Australia, because in Europe, there's obviously various tax incentives and whatnot to incentivize people buying them over a combustion engine equivalent because, you know, uh, using the UK as an example, because they're probably as close to an equivalent to our market as you can get in that, you know, most people do finance deals. And by the time you get all the incentives back on a plug-in hybrid car, it works out the same or cheaper than a normal combustion petrol or diesel, despite the price gap. So the problem is here, there's no incentive or tax break like they do overseas. So it means that the financial case is never going to make sense, especially when you're dealing with such a big gap in the first place. $17,000 is a lot of money. Once upon a time, you could probably buy a Peugeot 208 for for that price and, you know, (laughs) fill the gap. So it's a 76,990 car. And so not only is it somewhat of a mainstream badge. Peugeot sort of positions itself like Volkswagen these days in that it's sort of premium for the people or however you say it in French. And so they they sort of sit in that middle band and, and once you get to the plug-in hybrids price, you're firmly in premium sedan territory. So you've got Audi A4, Mercedes-Benz C-Class, and even though they don't offer the plug-in hybrids here, well, the C-Class is going to get one eventually, but it'll be more expensive – once you're in that sort of price bracket, you're, you know, you're, you're up against very stiff competition and some people might not even know what a Peugeot is. Hmm. So it's, um, it's a tough sell on paper because you look at the price and you're like, well, I can have an Audi A4 for less or I can spend five to ten grand more and get a plug-in hybrid BMW 3 Series. But as I found out during the course of my week or so with the car, like the Peugeot does have a lot going for it. Pricing has been something that we've talked about quite a lot when it comes to Peugeot recently. And, I mean, on the one hand, I understand why Febs are a big thing in Europe. Uh, You know, they have big tax breaks for them and company cars. And it also is a really clever way for car makers to get around very tight emission standards because the 508 and the 3008 have claimed fuel economy of less than 2 litres per 100 k's. They drag down the fleet average and they mean that uh, Peugeot doesn't have to pay a, a, a bucket load of euros in emissions fines every year. But on the numbers, that 508 is significantly more expensive. The 3008 is the same story. And we actually did some maths on 
how long you'd have to drive it with the perfect situation for fuel economy um, to make back the money that you'd save compared to a petrol 3008 GT Sport, and it would take you 20 years. Um, That's not including in Victoria the road user charge you have to pay on a plug-in hybrid. I do realise also that it's quoting best case figures, it's using an average mileage, all that sort of thing. But regardless of how you look at it, if it's purely a numbers-based decision you're making, these cars aren't the ones for you. But there are other reasons you might want to buy a plug-in hybrid, and one of them is that these cars are really quite nice to drive. Yeah, it's funny you say that, Scott, because this is one thing that I normally have to call out in any written review that I do of a plug-in hybrid and also speaking to friends and family that ask about the technology because, you know, some people just go like, oh, well, you just buy a fully electric vehicle, right? And first of all, electric vehicles are even more expensive. So when you think about, you know, making back the money on something like that, it's it's a similar, similar scenario. It's just that people see the petrol engine or they think, oh, I can just buy a Tesla and, you know, they're set. But I I think something that I really drive home with um, these kind of cars is that you have to sort of take the financial thing out of the equation, at least from a purchase price perspective. You have to sort of look at it from a running costs perspective and also then assess how much the environmental benefits matter to you. Because at the end of the day, if we just going to go like, oh, well, I'm not going to make the costs back, we're all just going to drive, you know, old shitters that put out so much CO2 that will blow the whole earth up in the next 10 years. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's, it's sort of just like every step counts. And so, you know, once upon a time, you know, even now you look at something like a Nissan Leaf and it's $60,000 for, you know, it's twice the price of what a normal, small hatchback would be and same thing with the Hyundai Kona electric it's twice the price of a a base Kona so it's sort of like a similar story to an electric vehicle but then with a plug-in hybrid you have the convenience of a petrol backup should you need it Um, and in the case of the Peugeots I know this was um, you'll probably go into this in a little bit with your 3008 reviews Scott is that the Peugeots actually have enough electric range that you could genuinely do quite long commutes without using the petrol engine at all. Um, My fuel readout was a little bit skewed because I had a a launch out of town on one night and it was sort of being thrown around between journalists so it wasn't charged every night. But when I actually did it properly, I did manage to get the fuel consumption down to about the one and a half, two litre mark per 100 Ks. And so something about plug-in hybrids that I think any perspective Um, potential buyer needs to know is that you need to understand how the technology works and how to get the most out of it so it requires you to plug it in every night and most owners should have access to some sort of charging in their garage or in their apartment um, complex or whatever and the good thing about plug-in hybrids is you can plug it in in a three-point wall socket it'll be charged in the morning and so i could reliably get 45 50 k's out of the 508 even though the bulk of my commute to the car expert office in melbourne is freeway which is where electric vehicles are least efficient so, you know, if, if it's, it's, it can be as simple as that and it's just a matter of educating the, 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 dem- the target demographic about how it works and also maybe manufacturers, if they really want to sell these, and I know BMW did, did this a few years ago, is maybe take a hit on the purchase price and really close the gap so that, you know, the same way that Toyota's made hybrid technology a thing when for so long everyone was like, well, why would I spend the extra three grand on a hybrid? Like, how long is it going to take me to make the cost back in fuel savings? It's the same argument, just maybe bigger price gaps and less knowledge about the technology. So I think it, it's, a, it's a two-way street there. I think what BMW did a couple of years ago with the three series in the X5 plug-in hybrids is that they basically made price parity between the equivalent petrol model and the plug-in hybrid and I think they saw some success it's just that now maybe exchange rates and maybe low uptake at the time didn't really help the case for it whereas now I think people are really switched on (laughs) pardon the pun (laughs) onto electrified technology people are really interested in Teslas people are really interested in electric vehicles overall and hybrids and all sorts of things we're seeing Toyota have more than 50% uptake across across most of their model lines that offer hybrid tech opting for hybrids so people are willing to pay a premium for a hybrid or electrified vehicle so if, if it can if people want it it's just making sure that a, it's not wildly more expensive because, like, for example, the 3008 that Scott reviewed is, like, 20 grand more than an already very expensive car. And the problem is with Peugeot is that they already have quite premium pricing, so they have premium pricing on top of premium pricing. It's, like, a double negative. But um, I think that, say, this car was 5 to 10 grand more expensive or even less, 
I wouldn't have knocked it so hard for value, for example, or you know, it, made, it actually made me realize how how, my, how good value the standard 508 is because for a long time we've knocked cut brands for positioning their cars in the more premium way, but now all prices are going up. So it's a really interesting um, scenario, but um, now I should probably talk about the drive impressions because I haven't really talked about how it drives yet. <laughs> the car is beautiful. Um, the 508, I haven't spent too much time in it before and so to actually get a refresher on how this car feels drives handles all that kind of stuff i actually fell in love with it and didn't want to give it back because it's yeah like the 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 refinement the smoothness the linearity of the drivetrain like it, it the way that this thing sort of switched between petrol and electric power was among the best that I've ever experienced it's so beautifully refined in that sense the the electric motor doesn't feel like it's severely underpowered that it can't power the car up the hill which i've experienced in some plug-in hybrids in the past and you know it's it just lopes along it's very very comfortable the cabin is beautiful it's covered in napa leather you know it, it feels like something special and you know for some people a lot of people don't really know Peugeot, so they see it and they're like oh what's this so if there's something special about it. it it presents very well externally internally front seat comfort's great um, it handles really nicely, even though it's got an extra 300 or so kilos of batteries and electric tech in it. Um, and one thing that Peugeot's done really well here is because uh, they've managed to integrate the electric electric stuff with a normal transmission. So it still runs an eight-speed also like the normal car. And they've managed to integrate the electrified stuff in there so that it not only is seamless between power sources, but it also doesn't, you know, shunt through gears and stuff like that as it changes or if it's using both, where we, you know, some other cars with this kind of technology, it's not as well integrated. So, you know, you're obviously paying a lot of money for it, but it does feel maybe not quite as good as it costs, or maybe it does in, a, in some ways, but I think especially for a Challenger brand, you sort of have to have, you, you can't be, it's not a like a Louis Vuitton sort of thing where people are willing to pay that much more money for a, a boutique French <laughs> product, you know what I mean? But this is a really excellent car, and I know some people poo-poo like plug-in technology, but I really think there's a place for it in our landscape, and um, I hope that we see more stuff like this arrive because I think the choice is really good, and a lot of people are still scared of having a full electric vehicle. Joe, did you notice with the 508, and I ask this because the 3008, uh, without consulting my review, is genuinely about 400 or 500 kilos heavier than the petrol car. Uh, it's 420-odd kilos heavier, and it really does feel it sometimes. The, the normal 3008 is really quite a nice car to drive. It feels light. It feels quite quick on its feet, and this one just floats over highway bumps and just feels a bit kind of bleh because it's a big, heavy car built on a small, lighter car's bones. Did you notice that with the 508 as well? Uh, to be honest, no. I think this one, maybe the weight's better spread out because it's so long, maybe. I don't know. And maybe <laughs> it doesn't have the extra electric motor for the rear axle like the 3008 does. So I think that um, this car is obviously meant to be a big, luxurious, comfortable sedan. Not, It's maybe not position the same way as like a 3008 it's meant to be a little bit more of a dynamic offering relative to its peers so you know driving this to and from work and in traffic and whatever i think the way that it behaved was very um you know it fit that brief quite well there was a couple of times where i tried to you know give it some give it some beans to get up to a freeway speed or you know a couple of little corners it doesn't feel super sharp and i know that um peugeot's latest products are pretty well known for being quite darty and you know well sorted from a cornering perspective this obviously loses a little bit of that sharpness because of the extra weight but i didn't think it was so compromised that it felt like numb or dull or um you know clumsy as perhaps you felt with the 3008 so i think you know at the end of the day this the way that they've managed to calibrate the adaptive suspension in this car to almost feel like air suspension when you go over tram tracks and stuff like there was not once where i was like oh this sort of has lost its body control or it feels like it's going to you know roll and tip over or anything like that it's still quite well sorted it feel, felt really um well put together and all that kind of stuff so you know i can't really complain from that perspective about the 508 if you'd like to know more about both of those Peugeots, head to carexpert.com.au. Thank you very much, James Wong. 
There goes this week's podcast. A little reminder of uh, some pages on Car Expert that you may have forgotten. The owner reviews, Moco. Yeah, I've got to say, um, I don't scroll beyond the comparison section all the time. And as much as I keep an eye on owner reviews, I don't give it as much attention as I probably should. And, and I'm going to pass to Scott in a second because he gives it a lot more attention than I do. But I'm just having a look at it. And the last few owner reviews, Focus ST, i30N, 370Z, Discovery Sport, 2003 Renault Scenic, 2020 Land Rover <laughs> Defender, 2021 Kia Cerato GT, 2014 Hyundai R20, 2018 Mazda 3. I mean, people quite often ask us, are cars reliable? We have to say we don't know because we test them when they're brand spanking new, don't we? Not in the case of owner reviews. And I think this is a really underutilized and perhaps not as widely understood part of the site. And um, Scully, I know you're much more involved in it than I am. How's that all going lately? It's going really well. Uh, we've got a lot of people filing them, which is really nice because it means that I don't have to stretch them out when I'm scheduling them. And we get them for some really interesting cars. I'm going a little bit further back, but 1992 Suzuki Cappuccino, which is never a car oh, I would have considered that someone would own in Australia. Um, but also learning about why people buy their cars and, and the things they toss up. There's a really interesting review of a 2011 Suzuki Alto. Um, and the guy essentially said that, we needed a cheap car. It was a cheap car and eventually we'll buy a nicer one, but I love it. And that's really interesting feedback because often we we maybe get out of whack with why we think people buy cars. And although some people buy them for the latest features and to show off to their mates and to go fast, there's plenty of people out there who just want transport. I think the other interesting thing is some of the stuff that comes up and the issues people have had with their cars We've got a review from someone at the moment whose car was misconfigured at the factory as part of a batch of cars that had that problem. Um, and although they have been offered some compensation from the company, they're very happy with their car. It's really interesting to hear about what happens when someone buys a car and it's meant to have one thing and then it just appears on their doorstep and this $65,000 car is missing features or has new features they didn't think they'd paid for. So lots of interesting things like that that we don't experience as journos because the cars handed to us are usually handed to us by the manufacturers who aren't going to give you a misconfigured car, funnily enough. <laughs> I've got to say, like, when I was younger and I was reading motoring magazines because, you know, I'm a dinosaur and that's what was around when I was young, you know, I used to wish that I could have some sort of involvement with these car publications that I loved. And one of the, the best things in my view about Car Expert is not only can you go in the comments and respond or engage with us on social, but if you've got a car and you want to actually tell us about it, we really would love it if you would. It's actually something that we're really desperate for all of our readers and viewers to tell us what you drive, fill out that form. It's really easy to fill out and um, it's just a brilliant stream of content. So really glad we're able to talk about it. And Good you stuff. can win a $100 fuel voucher, which if you own a Nissan Patrol, will get you from home to work twice. So <laughs> the best review of the week, which uh, I actually get to pick um, and there's been yeah. some really good ones recently. Paul sends the emails. So if you are waiting on one, I promise it's coming, but it's marriage's fault. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, there's also a chance to win yourself some fuel, which at the moment is pretty valuable. Absolutely. And uh, just to quickly wrap up, Scully, what launches have we got coming up? So next week, uh, it's not a launch, but we'll stop Ford's down with us in Melbourne, which is exciting. I'm just looking at our calendar now. And James is heading down to Tasmania to drive the new Audi S3. Really keen to see how that car stacks up. And given he's got a Golf GTI, he's pretty well placed to know about it. Yeah. Besides that, there's just mysterious Megatest stuff going on. So you're going to have to stay tuned for more on that. Yeah, we're actually setting our own agenda next week, which is much better than going along to a car launch. <laughs> I promise you, you'll love it. <laughs> Good stuff. Hopefully we'll be able to re reveal a little bit more next on next week's podcast. Um, Mike Costello and Scott Colley, thank you very much. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy.